Thank you so much, Kaylee. A number of years ago, Newsweek magazine published an article about the memorial service for former Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who had served as Vice President under Lyndon Johnson in the late 1960s. Humphrey in 1968 was the Democratic nominee for president and ran against Richard Nixon and just barely lost the election against Nixon. And so in 1968, he moved on to some other things. But sadly, 10 years later, after having contracted a cancer, Hubert Humphrey passed away in 1978. And his body was laid in state there in Washington, D.C. And as it laid in state and his funeral was about to begin, dignitaries and leaders from all around the world came to pay their respects to their former colleague and friend, Hubert Humphrey. And and so one after another came pouring into the room where his body was laid in state and hundreds were gathered and people were greeting, many who hadn't seen each other in years. And one man stood off to the side up against a wall, completely ignored by everyone in the room. The reporters pointed out that no one would talk to him, let alone even look at him. And that man who was off to the side ostracized was Richard Nixon. It had been four years since Watergate, and this had been his first time to return to Washington, D.C. since that point. And the reason he had come for this memorial service is because he had been personally invited by Hubert Humphrey himself, asking if he would attend when he died. And so Nixon honored that request and he came, but he was ostracized by everyone in the room. Then entered President Jimmy Carter. He hadn't been president very long by that point, but he entered the room and he was shaking his hands and doing the presidential thing. And he was just about to sit down when he spotted... Hubert Humphrey off by himself, excuse me, spotted Richard Nixon off by himself on that wall to the side. And Jimmy Carter, instead of sitting down, walked through the crowd across the room, and those that watched couldn't believe what happened. He went up, extended his hand, and from the handshake, he gave him a huge hug. And the smile that came across President Jimmy Carter's face was just blown everyone away. And those that were close by heard what he said. Jimmy Carter looked at Richard Nixon, who had been ostracized for the past four years, who was back in Washington, D.C. for the first time. And Carter said to him, Welcome home, Mr. President. Welcome home. Commenting on that, Newsweek magazine said, If there was a turning point in Nixon's long ordeal in the wilderness... It was that moment and that gesture of love and compassion. Why on earth would President Carter do such a thing? No one in the room wanted to do what he did. Well, I think he did it because he's a believer and follower of Jesus Christ who believes in shining the light of Christ. I've never met anyone that claims that President Jimmy Carter was a great president. Historians, frankly, rank him pretty low on the list. However, today, on February 17th, 2019, if you had been 
in Plains, Georgia at 10 a.m. this morning, Eastern Standard Time. You could have attended President Carter's Sunday school class at Maranatha Baptist Church, which he has taught for decades and still at the age of 94 years old, teaches twice a month. Why would he do such a thing at the age of 94? Because good president, bad president, or something in between, it didn't really matter. What matters most to him is that he shines the light of Jesus Christ every day that he lives. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, please. Luke chapter 8, we're going to be starting in verse 16 today. If you're using one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you're welcome to do so. And you can turn there to page 1024. Uh, We put the page number on your handout just so you can get there quickly. If you're not used to flipping around the pages of the Bible, uh, we make those Bibles available for you. If you don't have a Bible of your own at home, we'd love to send you home with one today. Just let us know after the service and we'll send you home with one. Uh, We're in Luke chapter 8 starting in verse 16. I also encourage you to pull out those message notes along with a pen or pencil so you can fill in the blanks and jot down some notes along the way. So we are in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 16. Today we're going to look at three short passages back to back to back. We're going to look at a lamp, a mother, and a storm here in Luke chapter 8. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day we have to dive into your word together. It is always an honor and a privilege to do so. We pray, God, that you would help us put our thinking caps on. We want to receive with our minds what you have to teach us. We want our ears to be open and able to receive what you have to teach us today. We want hearts that are soft and moldable by your word. And we pray, O oh God, that you just shut out any distractions so we can focus on what you want to teach us today. And we pray, Lord, that once we learn what you have to teach us, that we would put it into action, O oh God. Because you've called us to be expressways, not cul-de-sacs. You want us to receive your word and pass it on to those around us and to live out our faith just as Jesus Christ lived out the faith, demonstrating for us how to live. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Turn to the person next to you, ask them, are you ready for this? I'm curious, did they answer you back? We'll pretend the answer is a yes, amen? All right, Luke chapter 6, star, excuse me, chapter 8, starting in verse 16. Here we go. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Now, last week as we studied the parable of the soils, we talked about how that was a doorway parable. It's a doorway parable, not necessarily the first parable that Jesus told, but once he told that parable of the soils, it opened the door for him to share parable after parable after parable. He almost never would teach a crowd from that point forward without sharing a parable. 
And we saw it was also a doorway parable because it holds within it the interpretation of all other parables, the key to understanding all other parables. We saw last week that parables that Jesus told were designed to do two things. Number one, they were designed to reveal the truth of God to those who had ears to hear and wanted to really understand what God wanted them to know. And secondly, parables concealed the truth from those who really didn't care to understand what Jesus was saying. They came out for the dog and pony show. They came out to see Jesus open the eyes of the blind, or they came out because everyone else was doing it, or they came out for some other selfish reason. And so parables reveal the truth, but at the same time they conceal the truth. Now, if you were to come up to me and ask, which of those two is it for me, Dane? Are parables revealing God's truth to me, or are they concealing God's truth from me? And my answer to you would be, that depends. That depends. Are you hungry for God's word? One person, that's good. Okay, Yolanda? Yes, they are designed to reveal God's truth to you. Let me ask you again, are you hungry to understand God's word? So if you're hungry to understand God's word, if you want to understand God's truth, if you're willing to spend some time and some effort to wrestle with it, because have you understood over these years that this Bible is not the easiest thing to understand? It it takes some work. And so often we want everything in life kind of handed to us on a silver platter that's easy to digest and doesn't require much effort on our part. God didn't write the Bible to be completely cover-to-cover, simplex, super easy to understand. Are there parts that a child can understand? Absolutely. Are the basic messages of the Bible easy enough for anyone to understand, the basic messages? Absolutely. But if you really want to receive some of the deeper truths of God, it takes some effort, it takes some work. And so God, hopefully for every one of us here, is giving us these parables to reveal the truth. And as we saw last week, uh, based on what the soil of your heart looks like determines how much you'll be able to understand and receive and live out from God's word taught in these parables. There's four different types of soil. First of all, there's the hard soil. Those are the the hearts that are hard. They hear the word of God, but they immediately reject it. Uh, they don't want it to sink down into their hearts. They don't want it to change the way that they live. It does, they don't want it to change their priorities. Many who receive the word have hard hearts. Secondly, the second kind of soil is the soil that's shallow. Uh, someone might be initially enthusiastic about receiving God's word, but they don't allow the roots to dig very deep because they don't want it to completely change them. And they have other priorities and other things that make them a little more shallow. Maybe they accepted Jesus for a selfish reason, maybe to impress a girl, maybe to impress a guy, maybe because mom and dad put pressure on them, but it's not a deep decision. We saw the third bad soil last week in that parable of the soils is the thorny soil, that thorn-infested soil. Many will initially receive that message of salvation. They'll initially receive God's word, but all the worries of life and all the other priorities just choke out that decision, and they're just too distracted to allow the roots of God's word to sink deeply in their hearts. And then finally, the fourth soil is the one good soil. That is the soft, fertile soil 
where our hearts are ready to receive it. We want to know God's word. We're willing to be changed by God's word. My ego is not important. I want God to be honored. I want God to be pleased. And so if this hurts a little bit when I'm receiving God's word, so be it. If I have to make some changes that are hard, so be it. If this is a little bit embarrassing when my family and my friends look at me and say, what the heck are you doing accepting Jesus? Why are you going to church now? Why are you reading your Bible? Are you one of those Christian nuts? You know, I may take some abuse in the process, but so be it, because my heart is soft and wants to receive the Word of God and be changed, whatever that means. And so we saw that God desires for each of us to have soft soil, soft hearts, but He calls us regardless of how people receive the Word We have to be faithful in sharing it with those around us. Some will receive it with hard hearts. Some will receive it with shallow hearts. Some will receive it with over-cluttered hearts. But ultimately, there are always those who will receive it with soft hearts. And even those whose soft hearts aren't soft initially, we pray that God would do a miracle in those hearts. Amen? If you missed that message last week, I encourage you to check that out online or get a CD at our booth because that's so important for understanding the parables. Now, verse 16, I want you to notice here, Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Now, on the heels of this teaching of the parable of the soils, uh, because Jesus is making it clear that as you share his word, and particularly as you share the good news of salvation, the gospel message, there will be four different responses to that. They'll be hard, they'll be shallow, they'll be overcluttered, and they'll be good responses. And so the tendency of many Christians is to think if Jesus was just teaching this parable of the soils and making it clear that for some people they will receive the word, For others, they will reject the word. If the purpose of parables is to reveal, but also to conceal, as we follow in Jesus' footsteps, are we also supposed to conceal his word from those around us, just like Jesus did? And so for those disciples that might be thinking, I also need to conceal his message some way. He He gives us this wonderful parable, starting in verse 16, to make it clear You and I are never to obscure the gospel message. You and I are never to hide the teaching of God's word. Now, in the Bible, light is often used as a symbol for God's word. One of the most well-known verses in the Psalms is Psalm 119, verse 105, where the psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Many of us memorize that verse as as kids. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. He's making it clear that the word of God is a light. Now, over in Psalm 43, verse 3, the psalmist asks God, Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. That's one of many verses in the Bible that makes it clear that light is also symbolic of truth in God's word. So light in the Bible is a symbol uh, for God's truth and a symbol for God's word. So with that in mind, what is Jesus saying here in uh, in, uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 16? I think Jesus is saying here, just as no one lights a lamp during a power outage and hides it in the closet, no Christian who understands God's word should hide God's word. Amen? 
No Christian who understands God's word should hide God's word. Followers of Christ who know the truth about salvation, forgiveness, and heaven and hell should never keep that truth to themselves. So Jesus, as you're telling these parables, and they reveal the truth, and they also at the same time conceal the truth, do we do the same? No. You are to reveal the truth. Period. Jesus' circumstances were unique. He was drawing thousands upon thousands as he was performing all these miracles that, as far as I know, you weren't performing those same miracles yesterday, were you? Anyone open the eyes of the blind yesterday? Anyone raise the dead? Anyone cleanse a leper? Oh, you people are weak. Let me tell you about my day yesterday. Well, no, I won't. So Jesus had a unique ministry, and so he had the authority, he had the opportunity to do a reveal and conceal dual purpose thing with these parables. He makes it clear to us we are just to reveal. Now, I want you to imagine uh, you invite some neighbors over to your house tonight, okay? So you invite them over to your house for dinner, and those neighbors come in, and as they come in your front door, and you greet them, you welcome them, and you close the door behind them as they step into your entryway, they notice something a little bit odd. Inside your house, it's pitch dark. And so they think, okay, well, I guess they're just saving some electricity costs. But after five minutes, it's still pitch dark in there. And they're bumping into walls, and they're stumbling over furniture. And after about five to ten minutes, your neighbor gets up the nerve to say, you know what, I, I noticed it's a little dark in here. I'm having a little trouble seeing. Would it, would it be okay if you turn the lights on? Would, would that be okay? And you know how you respond? You say to your neighbor, I thought of that already. I did. Before you came over, I wanted to make sure that we had plenty of light. And so before you came over, I turned all the lights in the house on. In fact, I replaced all the bulbs with 100-watt bulbs. So, yeah, I, I got it covered. I already turned all the lights on. Now, your neighbor is looking at you as you're making that explanation. That neighbor's looking at you like you've completely lost your mind. But you're not offended because it's pitch dark. You can't see that look on their face. So you go ahead and have dinner. You stumble over to the table. You have dinner. And after a while, they stumble over. And they're noticing stuff during the evening. Uh, they're stumbling through the kitchen, and they stumble upon the, the refrigerator. They open the refrigerator door. Guess what happens? They open the refrigerator door, and they're blinded by the brilliance of a 100-watt light bulb inside your fridge. And they think, that's kind of odd. They close the door. It's pitch dark again. As they go to sit on the couch after dinner, they sit down on the couch, and they notice there's something lumpy in the cushion. And they lift up the couch cushion. There's a 100-watt light bulb brilliantly shining under your couch cushion. They go into the restroom, it's pitch dark. They open the medicine cabinet and they're blinded just like when they open the fridge door. And right before they leave, they say, thank you for a nice evening, and they trip over your kitty litter box. And as they trip over the kitty litter box, under three inches of cat litter is a brilliantly shining 100-watt bulb. What are those neighbors going to think of you when they head home? That's a weird neighbor. I'm not going back there. They're going to have this huge electric bill, and there's nothing to show for it. It's pitch dark in that place. Those people are nuts. You would never, ever, ever do that to a neighbor you invited over for dinner, would you? 
Under no circumstances would you flip all the lights on and hide them where they're no use to that neighbor. And they go home all black and blue because they tripped over everything in your house. Never in a million years would we put a neighbor through that. But for some reason, we don't think twice about inviting a non-Christian family member or friend or neighbor over to our house and hiding the truth of God's word from them. We don't think twice about bringing someone over to our house, and we don't say word one about God. We don't say word one about Jesus Christ. We don't say anything about salvation and the grace that he offers us. How much more of a waste of time is it when you and I as followers of Christ know the truth that sets men free and we hide that truth from our family and our friends and our neighbors? Shame on us. We hide the light of Christ in a medicine cabinet. William Barclay, I think, says it so well. He writes, verse 16 stresses the essential conspicuousness of the Christian life. Christianity is, in its very nature, something which must be seen. Isn't that true? It's something that must be seen. Think about these words. The Christian life must be conspicuous. It must be seen. He goes on to write, Hard as it may be, the duty is laid upon us of never being ashamed to show whose we are and whom we serve. And if we regard the matter in the right way, it will be not a duty, but a privilege. Isn't that good? God has given us this wonderful blessing to show whose we are and whom we serve. Yet we have this tendency to kind of hide it as Christians. So many times I've heard a Christian say, you know what, there's, there's two things I, I never talk about, politics and religion. Well... I don't follow that guideline too well. I started this message with a sermon illustration that involved Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon. And we talk about the truth of Jesus Christ every week, don't we? And when it comes to you and me, you say, well, I don't talk about politics and I don't talk about religion. Well, Lottie flippin' da. That's fine and dandy for you, but it doesn't do your neighbor or friends a bit of good, does it? We need to share the light of Jesus Christ with those around us. Bottom line, Jesus spoke in parables, concealing the truth as an act of judgment on hard hearts, but he never, ever asks his followers to conceal God's word. You and I are to proclaim God's word openly to all who are willing to listen. We proclaim the truth openly with our words and with our actions. It's not okay for Christians to just study God's word. We have to pass on God's word, amen? We have to pass it on. Now, do you know there's such a thing as a bad Bible study? Now, don't get me wrong. I love Bible studies. I love getting together with other Christians and diving into God's Word together. But do you know when a Bible study becomes not so great? A Bible study becomes not so great when Christians only sit around and learn God's Word together and never pass it on once that study's over. That's when a good Bible study becomes a not-so-good Bible study. The Word of God was always designed to be received, to be ingested, and then to be passed on and lived out. So if all we do is sit around and study God's Word together, and it never gets without, beyond the four walls of the building, there's a problem with that studying of God's Word. Jesus would teach His disciples, and then He would send them out. 
Paul spent, what, three years soaking in God's word right after his conversion? And then what did he do? He hit the mission field with it. And God's called us to do much the same thing. We are called to be lights in this dark world, to shine the light of God's word, to shine the truth of God's word. Now look at verse 17. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. So verse 16 emphasizes how our Christian lives are to be conspicuous. Our faith is to be lived out in plain view. And here in verse 17, Jesus stresses the fact that if we do try to keep our faith hidden, it'll eventually be revealed anyway, right? Have you ever been a little bit scared by the notion of this verse, that anything that we have hidden is going to be broadcast someday? Has that ever scared you a bit? You know, in a group this size, there's typically some guys that struggle with pornography in the group. Imagine on the big screen, what you viewed in private is one day going to be broadcast on the big screen for all to see. That'd be a little embarrassing, wouldn't it, fellas? God knows every thought that goes through your head. Some of us have had thoughts, serious thoughts, about killing somebody. Not just saying it in jest, but imagine that broadcast on the screen behind me. Imagine that secret addiction. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe, ladies, you're at work and you've got an emotional affair going on. Well, I've never physically done anything. It doesn't hurt anybody. Would you like that broadcast on the screen if you were having an emotional affair with someone? You look at the worst moments in your life, the, the, the most depraved thoughts, the most perverted words that came off your tongue, the actions you have done in the past that you're most ashamed of. Imagine those broadcast on the screen for all to see. Man, that would stink. That would be horrible. We'd all just want to crawl in a hole somewhere, wouldn't we? But in the context, that's not exactly what Jesus has in mind here. When he says there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open, that's in the context of sharing and shining the light of Christ's word to the world around us. And so in the context, Jesus is saying, That you as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are hiding your Christianity today, sooner or later, those you're hiding it from are going to find it out anyway. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I don't want those around me to think that I'm a Bible thumper, so I'm not going to tell them that I follow Christ. I'm not going to tell the people around me that I was just baptized last year. I'm not going to tell the people around me that I know the secret to to how to, to go to heaven someday because God reveals that secret plainly in his word. And so some Christians will just keep their faith to themselves. And God makes it clear here, one day everyone you're hiding it from is going to find out the truth anyway. So why are you hiding it from him? And imagine how terrible it would be if your family and your friends and your neighbors, one day when they find out that you're a Christian, they find that out for the first time after they've already died. And imagine what they might say. What? You mean to tell me that you knew all these years where I was going after I died and you didn't warn me? You 
knew how to make it to heaven and you didn't tell me? All this time I didn't think I knew a single person who was a committed Christian and you were one and you didn't let me know that? Why didn't you tell me something? Why didn't you speak up and let me know? How terrible it would be if our friends and family and neighbors don't find out that we know the truth about eternal life until it's too late for them. Look at verse 18. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Well, what does this verse mean? Well, I want you to think of it this way. There is no standing still in life. You're either moving forward or you're moving what? Those are your two options. There's no standing still in life. You're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. So if you as a Christian are learning God's truth, but you're not sharing God's truth, God will see to it that your growth is stunted and you'll start losing much of the knowledge that you've already learned. 29 years ago, when I was in my junior year of high school, I took trigonometry. Now they call it pre-calculus, but it was called trigonometry back then. So back then I was taking trig, I had it for two semesters, and I poured dozens and dozens and dozens of hours into attending that stupid, I mean that great class, and doing all that homework and taking those quizzes and taking those tests. Dozens of hours of my life were invested in trigonometry 29 years ago. Now ask me the question, Dane, how much trig do you know today? Absolutely none. How is that possible? I poured much of my life into this trig class. It's possible because I haven't used it in 29 years. If you don't use it, you lose it. It's just a principle in life, right? If you don't use it, you lose it. And that's much of what Jesus is saying here in verse 18. Consider carefully how you listen. Don't just take it in and leave this place and not live it out. Because if you don't use it, you will lose it. Whoever thinks he has, what he has will even be taken from him. Jesus says, consider carefully how you listen. So write this down. We must receive God's word with open ears, open minds, and open hearts. That's pretty clear. We talk about that fairly often here. God, even in that prayer that I prayed a little bit ago at the start of this message, God, you know, we want to have open ears. We want to have open minds. We want to have open hearts. But that's only half of it. Then we must share God's word with open eyes. Keeping my eyes open, who is out there that needs to hear what I've just learned from God's word? And once we have open eyes, we need to have open mouths, being bold enough, courageous enough to speak God's word. Will there be some hard soil, people that reject it carte blanche, people that don't want to hear it, they don't want to listen? Yeah, there will be. But are we going to courageously share it anyways because there's going to be some good soil out there too. And we have to have open hands ready to live out God's word. So we receive it with open ears and with open minds and open hearts. And then God is always determined for you once again to be an expressway, not a cul-de-sac, making sure that you have open eyes, open mouth, and open hands as you live out God's Word and share it with others. Well, Jesus goes on to the second of these short little passages here, starting in verse 19. This is what he writes, or this is what the text says, I should say. 
Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near Jesus because of the crowd. Someone told him, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. And Jesus replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. You probably remember back in the last chapter uh, what Jesus had said after John the Baptist's disciples had left him. Remember what Jesus said? John the Baptist's disciples had been sent by John while John was in prison. They were there to find out if Jesus was the Messiah or if John should look for somebody else. And Jesus did all those miracles and said, take this message uh, back to John. The eyes of the blind are being opened and the dead are raised and the lepers are being cleansed and the good news is preached to the, to the poor. And, and so Jesus, or, uh, John's two disciples leave Jesus, but the rest of that crowd is still there with Jesus. And he says to them, I tell you, of those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Remember that? And so we saw in the first half of that sentence, of those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. That's a wonderful compliment. But then he finishes the sentence, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. It, it kind of seems like maybe it was a backhanded compliment. We didn't understand that, and we saw in that last chapter, Jesus was in no way degrading John. He was simply upgrading Christians. We looked at that kind of silly example. If you had the opportunity to have a one-night stay in a hotel, would you pick the Roach Coach Motel in Barstow or a room at the Disneyland Hotel in Anaheim? And if someone came to you and says, well, tell you what, I'll give you the very best room at the Roach Coach Motel in Barstow, and you just get the worst room at the Disneyland Hotel in Anaheim, we'd still go Disneyland Hotel. Because I don't want to be at the Roach Coach Motel in Barstow. That place is terrible. And so much the same thing in this example that Jesus gave and the statement he made about John the Baptist, he's not degrading John, he's upgrading those that follow him. Because the reality is, the worst room in heaven is so much better than the best room on earth. Amen? The worst place in heaven, the deepest, darkest corner of heaven, is infinitely better than the Taj Mahal, the Ritz-Carlton, the Disneyland Hotel, whatever you think is the best place on earth, the beaches of Hawaii, Oh, the worst place in heaven is so much better than the best place on earth. So in Luke 7, 28, Jesus wasn't demoting John. He was promoting Christians, and that's what we call grace. And in the same way here in verses 19 through 21 in chapter 8, Jesus is not criticizing his biological family members. At first glance, it appears that he's slighting his mom and he's criticizing his brothers, but he's really not. He's not degrading his mom. He's simply upgrading his disciples. Amen? He's not demoting his half-brothers. He's simply promoting those who are in his spiritual family. As we saw in that passage with John the Baptist, it's a matter of position. It's a matter of position. It's often been said that blood is thicker than water. But it's equally true that the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. Amen? And so Jesus is making it clear that you and I, we may have our parents' DNA running through every cell of our bodies, but if we're born-again believers and followers of Jesus Christ, more important than our parents' DNA running through our cells is the fact that the Holy Spirit of Almighty God is running through every cell of our bodies. 
the spirit is thicker than blood. And so Jesus is making a point here, not that his mom is not important, not that his biological half-brothers are not important. He's making the point that if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you've got a brand new family. You've got a brand new father in heaven. You've got brand new brothers and sisters in Christ. And this family can be tighter than any biological family that's ever walked the face of God's earth. Amen? You may come here today and you have no relationship still with your parents today. You may come and your brothers and sisters don't want to talk to you. They've, they've ostracized you. They disowned you. I've had many times someone in this church come up in the past and mention to me, and they seem to me to be as sweet as pie. I said, my brother, my sister, they haven't talked to me in 30 years. They want nothing to do with me. Sad. But it's just the reality of the sinful world we live in. It, ha- it happens so often. You know, you look at someone and say, I don't see how anyone could dislike this person. But a brother or a sister or a child or a parent think they're the scum of the earth. But you know what? There is a place for you in God's household. There is a place for you in this church. Even if you've been ostracized and shunned and disowned by your family, this church has open doors and open arms. You're welcome here. And Jesus Christ will give you an opportunity to be forgiven. Jesus Christ will be an, have an opportunity for you to have those sins washed away. And all those sins, they won't be broadcast on the screen. They'll be removed and they'll be covered with the blood of Jesus Christ and removed as far as the east is from the west. Jesus Christ has a place for you in his family. And we hope that you'll join the family that Jesus Christ has invited you to join. Blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit of God is thicker than blood. One last little passage we'll look at today, starting in verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Usually that spells trouble. When Jesus gets in a boat and they head across the lake, a lot of times it doesn't go too well for the disciples. As they sailed, he fell asleep. So as Jesus was sleeping, a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown! He got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the wind and the waves. And they obey him. Isn't that a great passage? So the Sea of Galilee, we talked about this a couple months ago. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. It's 686 feet below sea level. That's pretty stinking low. 686 feet below sea level. And it's fed in the north by the northern part of the Jordan River that winds through a canyon. And so what happens is because these high hills that the Jordan River has carved its path through, because of the elevation changes on the top of these high hills, and because the Sea of Galilee is 686 feet below sea level, there's quite regularly this, this uh, very 
uh, kind of traumatic clashing between a hot air rising and cold air dropping into that valley and through those canyons. And so what happens even today is there in the canyons up above uh, the Sea of Galilee, these storms start to flare up very quickly, very suddenly, and those storms will whip through the canyon walls and come onto the Sea of Galilee. And so oftentimes, without much notice at all, there's suddenly this huge storm on the Sea of Galilee. And so this is very common even today. I, I heard about a pastor that was talking to one of the, uh, the captains there that pilots a ship on the Sea of Galilee today. And he, he asked him, have you ever seen one of these storms on the Sea of Galilee, like is described in the pages of the New Testament? And the captain said, I sure have. And I hope I never get caught in that again. Even in modern day boats and ships, they do not want to be out on the sea when the storm flares up. Well, There Jesus and his disciples were, on a boat heading to the opposite shore, when all of a sudden this wicked storm kicks up that started tossing their boat like a rag doll. They're moving back and forth, and the boat was filling up faster than they could bail the water out of the boat. And So they're trying to bail the water, but the waves keep crashing over it. And meanwhile, we learn from Matthew and Mark and their recordings of this same account, that Jesus was in the back of the boat. And possibly it was a boat that was large enough to have a little under uh, side, so he might have been underneath the deck uh, there in the back side of the boat. But there he is, and he's taking a nap. Jesus is pretty tired. And so I, I don't know about you. Have you ever slept through your alarm clock going off? Anyone? Just about all of us? Have you ever slept through someone in the next room watching television? Have you ever slept through... Your teenager having 15 teenagers spending the night at your house and being up all night? Yeah, Christine, I had that a couple months ago. About one in the morning when all the girls from the youth group were over, about one in the morning I went out to the backyard to my shed and got my industrial commercial earmuffs, and I put those bad boys on, and I was able to sleep through that. That was very nice. So have you ever slept through a 7.5 earthquake? Not so much. You know, imagine... You know, the earthquake is, is going, and then they're out on the, on the lake, and it's pretty much like this, and Jesus is just, he's just back, and he's sleeping great. He's not worried about a thing. If we had a 7.5 earthquake in the middle of the night, and it wakes you up from a dead sleep, you'd be like, ah! But not Jesus. He's just sleeping away, and so they wake him up. Jesus, Master, Master, don't you care if we drown? What are you guys so upset about? He stands up, he rebukes the wind and the waves. Peace, be still, Mark records his words. Peace, be still. Normally, they'll tell us today when there's been a ferocious storm on the Sea of Galilee, it takes a couple hours for the water to calm down. It stays choppy for hours. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and almost instantaneously The water is still. Two minutes earlier, the disciples were so scared, the last place they wanted to be was in that water. They were convinced that ship was going to be broken in half and they were going to be in the water and they'd die there. It would be a watery grave. Two minutes earlier. Once Jesus calms the wind and the waves and the the waves are perfectly still, a lot of those disciples felt like jumping into the water and getting away from Jesus because they were terrified. That storm was scary, but this is more scary. Who 
is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. Friends, Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? And He asks you and me the same question. Where is your faith? If your faith is in Him, what Jimmy Carter did at that event in 1978 should be the norm for you and me. If our faith is in Jesus Christ and we've received His Word and we've experienced His goodness and we've experienced His grace and our lives have been changed and He's changed me from a selfish, self-absorbed, going-nowhere-fast kind of man into a transformed creature that can serve Almighty God and have purpose in my life and hope in my life and peace in my life, knowing that whenever my life ends, I'm going to go to heaven. Glenn was telling us the story on Friday night. He was heading up the group at the warming shelter Thursday night, and there were some uh, homeless folks that were acting up a bit, and he had to show them the door. And some people wondered if he was going to be killed that night. Glenn's like, I don't care. I know where I'm going. So he did what God told him to do that night. There were some that were ruining it for the rest of the group, and so he dealt with them. And they didn't care for him in the moment. It was a little scary for those around him wondering if they were going to have to come to Glenn's defense. I don't think those he escorted to the door knew that he had a bad rotator cuff and shoulder. (laughs) He talked tough and he did the trick. God gave him what he needed. Maybe God puts you in these situations that others may look at and say, what are you doing putting yourself in that situation? Well, if God puts you there and tells you to act, he tells you to speak up, you've got to do what he says. I knew my wife was going to be mad at me a few years ago when I picked up a hitchhiker on Highway 2 coming back from Angeles Crest Camp one Sunday morning. I don't pick up hitchhikers. I'm driving past the guide. God, that's against my policy. And aside from that, my wife will kill me. He said, I don't care. Turn around and pick the guy up. I've shared this story with some of you before. It was an amazing experience. Just being in tune to what the Holy Spirit was asking me to do in that moment. God has called you to be brave and courageous, to stand up and share the truth. You've received the truth. Don't keep it to yourself. You know God's word. Don't keep it to yourself. And yeah, there'll be some with hard hearts. There'll be some with shallow hearts. There'll be some with overcluttered hearts. But you're going to find good soil as you faithfully speak up for Jesus Christ and live out his word that he's taught you. So many have done it before us. And he's called us to do it as well. To use these mouths, to use these hands, to speak forth and live out the word of God. You better believe that when our faith is in him, when our calling is from him, when those marching orders are from him, you will not speak alone. You will not act alone. He will be with you every step of the way. Father, thank you for sending your Son to blaze the trail for us. Thank you for giving us the privilege of revealing your Word. Lord, I've thought about this many times. You could send your angels down here, and they could do a better job speaking than I do. But Lord, you've given me the privilege of speaking for you. Lord, sometimes I get tongue-tied. I don't think your angels would ever get tongue-tied, but tied, but you get I just did it. Lord, but you give me the privilege of speaking your Word. Thank you. Lord, your angels could come down. They could do a better job living out the faith than I could. But you give me the privilege of living it out in plain view of others. 
Lord, thank you. Thank you for that privilege. May each of us here who follow you see it as a privilege and an honor to speak for you, to live for you, and to let our light shine in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.